This sermon was first recorded at Necton All Saints on the 14th of April 2013. The passage was John 21 verses 1 to 19. You are listening to a sermon from the Pilgrim Path with your preacher Samuel S. Thorpe. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for who you are, and we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through the scriptures and through your Son Jesus by the Holy Spirit. We pray that as we read and discuss the scriptures, you will both walk alongside us and teach us both new things we haven't thought of before and remind us of the old things that we shouldn't forget, so that we might come to know you better than we have before. May the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, and encouraging to those who are listening. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's nice to see you again. Uh, today, we are still celebrating Easter. As Brian said, you don't stop celebrating Easter just because there's no chocolate. So can I get an hallelujah? Come on. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Come on, let's get excited. Even better. Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, died and then rose from the dead. And we were celebrating this just two weeks ago. Let's have a proper resounding hallelujah. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Brilliant. That was better than I expected, actually. Thank you. That was, that was good. But, you know, sometimes it can be easy to think that we've done Easter. It happened two weeks ago. We've celebrated it. The family have gone home and we've now got some peace and rest to ourselves. However... I think we should look at how we react to Jesus, not just at Easter, but after Easter. Today I want to have a look at the main character from the passage in John, which was Peter, and actually from Paul, because um, I was expecting the Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9 to be read out, and that's what I've written and prepared, so I'm afraid you'll have to go with that. So last week, Brian talked about the unfortunately named Doubting Thomas. And in that, he commented that we don't remember Paul as persecuting Paul. But actually, it's exactly persecuting Paul who zealously hounded the early Christians that I would like to talk about today. And also, I want to talk about Peter, the Galilean fisherman, upon whom Jesus said the church would be built. So let's start with Peter. Peter, who was called Simon, was the first disciple to be called by Jesus, along with his brother Andrew and the sons of Thunder, James and John. According to John's Gospel, Peter's brother Andrew had heard John the Baptist testify that Jesus was the Son of God. And Andrew had in turn told Peter that Jesus was the Messiah. Peter was there from the very start of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and as he travelled with Jesus and the others, he saw the impossible happen on a regular basis. He walked for miles through the countryside, from village to village, and from town to town. Travelling with Jesus, he saw the crowds gathering from all the surrounding villages, and he saw the Pharisee and the other religious leaders challenging Jesus publicly, and he saw Jesus' responses to them. He watched and listened as Jesus turned the traps that had been intended to catch him out back onto those that were trying to trap him. Peter was there when the crowds of 5,000 and 4,000 were fed by the sea, and Jesus fed them with just a couple of loaves and some fish. He was there when the crowds were so persistent that Jesus and the disciples couldn't find time to eat. Jesus saw, Peter saw Jesus place his hands on the blind, and as he removed them, they could see. 
As he touched the lepers, their skin cleared. He was there up on the mountain when Jesus shone with a dazzling white, and he saw Moses and Elijah appear to him. He was there when Jesus taught in parables and told stories to teach. He sat by his feet with the other disciples as Jesus preached to first this crowd and then the next crowd and the next crowd as they went through all the towns. He was the one who answered Jesus' question, Who do you say that I am? With the profound, You are the Christ. He saw Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, and he was there when the Passover meal happened, and he ate of the bread and drank of the wine. He was there when Jesus said that the temple would be destroyed and three days later be rebuilt. Yet, as he saw all the miracles and he heard all the teachings so often that he probably knew it off by heart himself, the question remains, did he understand? Did he get it? We asked that question of Paul too. Paul, or Saul as he was known at first, wasn't a fisherman and he didn't experience Jesus' ministry firsthand. Rather than being a poor labourer living from day to day, Paul was a Pharisee. He was born in Tarsus of Silica, but grew up in Rome, and indeed he was a Roman citizen. And he was thoroughly trained in the law by a guy called Gamaliel. Now Gamaliel appears to us in Acts chapter 5, and he is shown to be a Pharisee who commands the honour and respect of all the Jewish leaders and rabbis at the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish court where they would discuss all the theological and political issues of the day. So for Paul to have been taught by someone as well-respected and well-known as Gamaliel, it would have been as significant as perhaps someone being taught physics by Einstein, or how to play the violin by Vivaldi, or perhaps tennis by Federer. When you're taken on and trained by the best, it's reasonable to expect that you will excel, and Paul did. In his letters, he writes that he was, to all intents and purposes, the perfect Jew that kept to all the commands in the law. No one else could match his passion and zeal for obeying the law. Now Paul knew the scriptures inside and out, and yet the more he heard about this Jesus person, the angrier he got. He knew that the Lord God, the one true God that was the God of Israel, was the only God. And this holiness meant that he was distinct from not only other gods, but from creation. God was special, different, and holy. As such, his chosen people Israel were to be different and to be set apart by following his commands. So when Paul, as he was probably there with Gamaliel, heard about Jesus dying on a tree and being raised from the dead to sit at the right hand of God, he would have had all sorts of alarm bells ringing in his head. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 to 23, it says, If a man guilty of a capital offence is put to death and his body hung on a tree, you must not leave the body on the tree overnight because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. For Paul, this verse would have sprung to mind immediately. Jesus was hung on a tree. He was crucified on a cross. Therefore, he was obviously under God's curse. So how could he be the one that was exalted up to God's right hand on high? That just doesn't make sense to Paul's thoroughly trained Jewish mindset. And you can guarantee that the more he heard from the apostles who were going around healing people and teaching in the name of Jesus, the angrier he would have become. This man Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, the truth alone was the way, and it was, no, sorry. The Torah alone was the way, and it was how God guided his people in their lives. And God himself was the truth. No man or anything that could die could be the truth, because the truth has to be that which created everything else that came first. So how could a man be the truth? 
And this Jesus, he'd ridden the donkey into Jerusalem, where he was clearly just pretending to be a Messiah. He knew about the prophecies, he was just making it up, surely. That's what Paul would have thought. But no Messiah would die a week later, because the Messiah wouldn't die, would he? This Jesus, this guy who claimed to be God and who had broken the Sabbath and mingled with sinners, had deserved to die. And having died, he was definitely cursed by God. To claim that this fraud had risen from the dead was preposterous to Paul's mind. He knew and understood the law far better than the average Jew on the streets. He understood much deeper than most people would how the consequences of sin is death. By everything he knew and believed, the stories and teaching of Jesus must have seemed to be blasphemous. That's why in Acts chapter 9, we're introduced to Paul as breathing out threats and murder. You get the impression he's pacing around, wanting to arrest all the Christians. This heresy of God being a man, of, not, of God not being holy and different, must be crushed. But even Paul, with all his understanding, with all the scriptures at his disposal, he just didn't get who Jesus was. He just didn't get it. And so we have two people who are very different. We have Peter, who had all the experience of three years of walking with Jesus and hearing him teach and watching him perform all these miracles. And on the other hand, we have an intellectual academic guy who knows all his scriptures. And yet neither of them have understood. They just didn't quite get it. Because although they're both very different, they both did the same thing. They both rejected Jesus. Peter followed Jesus around Israel and saw everything. Yet when he stood by that fire, straining to hear what was happening to Jesus as he was questioned in the courtyard, he denied that he even knew him. Three times he was asked if he was one of the disciples. And for three years, he had been the disciple that was always there. But three times he said, I am not one of them. I do not know him. And whereas Peter passively cowered in the shadows, Paul's rejection is literally violent. He sets about gaining the authority to capture those who are the followers of Jesus. Significantly, he even wanted to capture the women, not just the men. If you look in your Bibles at Acts chapter 9, verses 2, it will say, he asked for letters to the synagogues, so that if he found any of those who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, sometimes modern translations decide that words such as Adelphoi, which means brothers, should be translated as brothers and sisters, because it's an inclusive term for everyone that was in that group. However, in this case, it actually spells out that both the men and the women were being arrested. Literally, it says, men, both, and women. Now, this might seem like a minor point, but it's actually very interesting. The inclusion of women, who were culturally relatively insignificant and didn't have that much of an influence on society, except for maybe the occasional wealthy widow. So, And yet, this influence, however small, however marginalized, is still considered dangerous by Paul. And as such, he endeavors to arrest the women as well as the men. And this just goes to show how powerful the gospel truth really is, that even by the standards of that society, those who were insignificant will still seem to be dangerous because of the power that happened when they spoke and talked of Jesus. By seeking to capture both men and women, Paul is denying Jesus totally, refusing to let anyone spread what he viewed as heresy. Now, we today are very fortunate to have the benefit of hindsight. When we look back, we can go, 
well, they didn't get it right. There's another bit to the story. They did come to understand. We're able to go, well, Jesus was more than just a miracle worker and more than a teacher. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that he was the revelation of the Father. We believe he came down from heaven and became truly human, just like us. He was the one who died for us on the cross. He was the one who rose from the dead to fulfill the scriptures. And he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. But much of figuring out who Jesus was didn't actually happen until people had had time to actually sit down and think and figure it out for themselves. At this point in the story, neither Peter or Paul have actually got it. And so we come on to the passage from John. Let's imagine that you're Peter. You knew this Jesus guy, you were there. You promised to be by his side no matter what. But when it came down to it, you couldn't do it. Instead of following Jesus to the death, you cowered in the shadows and pretended you'd never even met him. Later you see him die, painfully, slowly. You have failed him. But then the impossible has happened and you've heard he's alive. You've rushed to the tomb and searched it and it is empty. And then you are in a room and he's appeared to you and the other disciples. And at first you're overwhelmed, you're amazed, it's amazing. He's alive, how can this be? This is just wonderful. And now you understand everything he's ever done. You understand who he is. And now you realize who it is that you turned away from. You understand who it is you've denied. Can you imagine how much guilt Peter would have felt? I mean, he already felt guilty. He already felt bad for having rejected Jesus. But now he's realized that Jesus was even more than he thought he was. He was even greater than he thought he was. And so he goes out fishing. It was his old trade, and it would have been a lot of hard work. Men often would fish naked because of the amount of sweat that would happen as they were rowing and doing things and casting the nets over the side and lugging fish on board. So he's working hard and trying to sort out actually what's been going on. It must have been very overwhelming because after all, no one's ever come back from the dead before. So this guy that you knew, Jesus, he died and yet is somehow alive, and you denied him. How's he going to treat you the next time you actually talk to him? Is he going to condemn you? Is he going to be angry with you? And then you hear a voice from across the water. It's your old friend and teacher calling from the beach. The other disciples are busy throwing the nets over to the other side and catching all the fish. But you're just nervous and excited. It's the Lord, but what should you do? And in that moment, Peter makes his choice. He gets it. Grabbing his clothes, he dives into the water. Right now, nothing else matters than getting close to Jesus. A few moments later, and everyone else has arrived on the beach, and everyone's eating and drinking and eating the fish on the barbecue. And a short while later, Jesus takes Peter aside. Now, can you imagine if you were Peter, and Jesus has taken you aside, and you're on your own, and you're like, how is he going to react? Is he going to condemn me for what I did? Or is he going to be okay? Or where do we stand? And Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Not, why did you deny me? Not, you're an idiot and a fool. But rather, rather than being upset with whether or not Peter understood him then, he's more concerned about, does Peter get it now? Do you love me? And Peter says, yes. Three times Peter denied Christ, but now three times he says that he loves him. I'd like to imagine that at this moment Jesus is smiling at him. 
And as he walks back to the other disciples, he says, follow me. Not just back to the disciples, but for the rest of his life. Peter has finally got it. He's been reconciled to Jesus and is forgiven for his denial. For Peter, the proof of the pudding was in the eating, literally. Jesus was eating the bread and fishes and confirming the resurrection truth and the entrance of a new covenant with God. He was no ghost or pale phantom spirit, but an authentic, genuine man of flesh and blood, the Lord resurrected from the dead. However, persecuting Paul requires a slightly different form of proof. He's on his journey to Damascus in pursuit of those troublesome Christians, and suddenly there's a light flashing around him, a light from heaven that's surrounding him. This light could remind us of the lightning that surrounded the Israelites at Mount Sinai when God re-establishes his covenant with them, or of the transfiguration when Jesus shone with the glory of the, with the, glory of the Lord. Paul here sees the glory of the Lord shining around him. And as he looks up, some think he actually saw Jesus, because he later wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.1, Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus, our Lord, with my very own eyes? And as he's there with the light flashing around him, a voice calls out, Saul, Saul. Here he is being called by name by Jesus in a heavenly light. Paul's mind would have instantly recognised the connotations of such verses as Isaiah 45, 4. Why did I call you by name when you did not know me? It is for the sake of Jacob, my chosen one. Or perhaps he would have noticed a parallel with another Saul, the Saul of the Old Testament, and how that Saul behaved to David, and how he has behaved to the son of David. The voice continues, Why are you persecuting me? He replies, though I imagine he had a pretty good idea. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. The Greek uses two words for I am, one after the other, to make it a most definite, I am Jesus. It's the same as when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here Jesus is revealed to Paul as that which Paul had vehemently denied. Jesus is God the great I am of the burning bush in Exodus. In a single instant, everything that Peter had thought about these Christians and their supposedly heretical Christ had radically changed. He had had all the learning, but he hadn't understood. But now he has seen the light, if you'll excuse the pun. Blinded, Paul was then guided by hand to the city. So we have these two great men. We have Peter, who had been there and not understood. And we have Paul who had been educated and yet didn't understand. While one hid from the truth, the other declared it a dangerous lie. One was forgiven on the beach by Jesus, and the other was called from a heavenly light. These two men couldn't have been more different in how they had heard and experienced the gospel, or in how they responded. But neither of them had understood it fully, and both of them had rejected it. In both cases, it was the powerful truth of the resurrection and of Jesus' actual identity as more than a miracle worker, but the Son of God himself that broke through their misunderstandings and enabled them to see the truth. Now, I could ask you whether or not you are or have been like Peter. Perhaps, like myself, you have grown up in a Christian family. You know your Bible stories and you go to church regularly. Or perhaps you are or have been more like Paul, strongly opposed to the gospel because of your own philosophical understandings or objections. 
But I don't really think the question is about whether or not you have been like Peter or whether or not you have been like Paul. I think the question is, do you understand? Have you taken on board the gospel of Jesus? When he calls your name, do you answer him? We all have our own stories of our own lives, and they are all different to our neighbours' stories of their lives. But it doesn't really matter if your story is more like Peter or Paul's. What matters is that your story is a part of Jesus' story. So how can we take part in that story? Peter joined that story from the very start of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus told him to follow him. And after everything they went through, he ended up on that beach, and Jesus again said, follow me. But how do we follow him? When Paul is brought into the story of Jesus, he is called as Saul. And Jesus sends Ananias to heal Paul of his blindness, fill him with the Holy Spirit, baptize him, and to tell Paul that he was to be a chosen implement to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul does it, and he travels around from Jerusalem to Rome via most of the Mediterranean. But it's easy to look back and say, well, they were called to big things. They were called to do wonderful things with God, and God was there with them and supporting them. But I'm just me. I'm just small, and I'm here today. So what am I supposed to do? How do I join in the story of Jesus? Well, I believe that we are, just like Paul and Peter, called into relationship with God. That is the Gospel of Easter. Not that Jesus died, but that Jesus died so that we might have life. He didn't die and just come back to life because it make a cool story, but he did it so that through him we could be free of sin and able to live in relationship with God as he intended. Our role in the story is twofold. Firstly, we are called to tell the story. By telling the story of what happened 2,000 years ago and of what we have seen in our own lives, we become part of the story. We are called to share it with others, to pass it on so that other people can know about Jesus, so that they too can know that he is the Son of God and that they too can enter into relationship with the Father through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the second part is to be community. Jesus died so that we could be reconciled to the Father, so that we could be called friends of God. As such, in our own lives, we should try to repair broken or damaged friendships with each other. We should try to get to know one another better, to support one another, whether it's in the big things or the little things, to make sure that those conversations over coffee count, that we become more like the family of Christ so that we, the church, are united to both God and to each other in the love of Christ as a witness to the world that Easter really is something to get excited about. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.